All right, well, I'm excited to be back up here with y'all to be walking with you through the book of Nehemiah. You guys are going to need Bibles. You guys are definitely going to need Bibles. Um, you're going to need an outline as well. There are outlines back there on the table uh, with pens available to you. So let me go ahead and let me let, me let y'all know this right now, okay? This time of year, October, specifically at the end of October, as we come up onto October 31st, is one of my favorite times of year, okay? Normally, we have a thing here called 1517, all right? Some of you have seen it. Some of you have worked it. Most of you, I think, have seen it and done it before. Maybe not everyone. But 1517 is one of my favorite things. We're the only church in the world that does it, all right, because we're the ones who wrote it. And so we're the only ones who do it. It's a lot of fun. It tells the story of Martin Luther, okay? And so this time of year is one of my very favorite times of year because we go over the story of Martin Luther. Now, as I prepared for this Nehemiah study, my mind naturally went to the story of Martin Luther. My mind naturally went to the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas are... Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. Their Latin phrases are sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. You guys don't have to remember all that. But as I was studying for Nehemiah, my mind kept going to Martin Luther. And so as I was looking at it and as I was seeing how Nehemiah breaks down, I started realizing that it follows those solas really well. Last week, we looked at grace alone. This week, we're going to look at faith alone, and we're going to see how it applies in the life of Nehemiah. But before we do that, I do want to tell you the story of Martin Luther. How many of you have done a study on Martin Luther from your schools or uh, anything like that? Yeah? How many of you... Um, how many of you feel like um, how many of y'all feel like Martin Luther well let me let me when you do a Google search of Martin Luther, do you know what you find most of the time? Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, that's normally who you find. Martin Luther King Jr. was named after Martin Luther, this German monk who we talk about every October. So, Martin Luther King Jr., obviously, very important person, very prominent historical figure, but that's not the Martin Luther we're talking about tonight, and that's not the Martin Luther we normally talk about in October. Let me tell you his story. He was a German monk who lived in the 16th century, all right? Let me even back up a little bit further. Let me kind of set the stage for you about what's been going on in Christianity at the time Martin Luther came around. Now, Christianity had only one church at the time. Now today, there's all kinds of churches. There's Baptists, which is, you're in a Baptist church right now. There's Methodists. There's Presbyterians. There's all those kinds of things. Well, back then, there was only one church. That was it, just one. Does anyone know what it was? Yeah, it was the Roman Catholic Church. It was the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church was the only one. They had a monopoly 
on Christianity. Do you guys know what it means to say a monopoly? It means you not it's not not the game monopoly. What does it mean? Yeah, you're in charge of everything. Everything Christian, and that's what a lot of y'all were saying as well. Everything Christian was under the Roman Catholic rule. And there are some things that they did, okay? The first major thing that they did, the Roman Catholic Church outlawed, outlawed the Bible. Makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? Here's the thing, guys. If we still live during that time, and if they came in here today, and if they saw us with the Bibles we have in here today, we would all be arrested, or even worse, some of us could be killed. So, Jonathan, you've got a Bible right in front of you. You could be killed for that if we lived back in those days. And all of us in here could share the same story. Not only was it illegal to own a Bible... You had to go to the church, and they had to tell you what was in the Bible. Not only was it illegal to have your own Bible, but it was also illegal to have a Bible in your own language. So if you came in here, if we lived in those times, and if I was going to teach you from the Bible, I wouldn't be speaking to you in the English language. You know what language I would be speaking to you in? Not Hebrew. Latin. I would be speaking to you in the Latin language. Now, I cannot, I can't just throw out Latin. If you put Latin in front of me, I could read it to you, but I don't have a Latin Vulgate with me. Um, but if I had Latin, I could read some to you. Um, but I can't just, I'm not fluent in it. I can't just throw it out there. But Latin was the only language it was allowed to be in. Now, who across the world speaks the Latin language? Not Latinos. I heard it. Nice try. Nobody speaks the Latin language. The Latin language is, in fact, a dead language. Nobody speaks it now. No one spoke it then. There's not a single place that speaks Latin. The only people who spoke Latin were the people who worked for the church. There were also some kings and some princes and some provinces who because of their education, they would learn the Latin language. Lawyers would know the Latin language, but only if they came under the education of the church. So if you came to church during that time, you would only hear the Bible being read to you in Latin. You'd have no idea what it said, and then the church would tell you whatever they wanted to tell you. Here are some things the church used to say. The church used to say not only was it illegal for you to have a Bible in your own language, but you also have to do something about your sins. You have to fix your own sins. You must take care of them on your own. And the way you take care of your sins, you got to give us money and we'll provide things for you. If you gave me some money, Andre, if you gave me some money, I'll tell you what, I've got this piece of paper here, it's called an indulgence. And if you gave me a piece of paper, or excuse me, if you gave me some money, I'll give you this piece of paper, and this piece of paper is going to help you out. How is this piece of paper going to help you out? Well, one of the things that the church used to teach, and no one could tell them it was wrong because, because it was spoken in Latin only, 
One of the things they used to teach, and actually the Catholic Church still teaches this to this day, that there's this place called purgatory. Now purgatory is a place in between earth and heaven where the church would say when you die, you go to that spot and you're there for thousands and thousands of years while your sins are burned off of you before you're allowed to go into heaven. So the church was there to say, Andre, I tell you what, man, you've got a long time ahead of you in purgatory, but if you pay me some money, I'll give you this piece of paper, and this piece of paper will take off some time in purgatory for you. So let's say you gave me $10, and I gave you this piece of paper. This piece of paper would probably be good for $10. Man, this will knock off five years in purgatory. That's pretty good, isn't it? But then let's say that Casey comes up and Casey says, well, I'll give you $20. Oh, well, I've got this other indulgence, this other piece of paper here, and says, you're paying me $20. How about we bump that up to $15? They even had one sold by this guy named Johann Tetzel, and the price tag for it was over the top. They said, hey, if you... If you buy my indulgence, if you pay money for this piece of paper, you get to go to heaven without even having to stop at purgatory. And you know what? Let's pretend that, let's pretend that Mr. Keith uh, had already gone on into purgatory and they said he was burning there. You know what? I could buy one for Mr. Keith. And Mr. Keith, because of what I did for you, there you go. You get out of purgatory. What a nice thing. Now, what were you about to ask? That's absolutely right. It makes no sense. So why didn't the people stand up and say that's wrong? Be because they didn't know it was wrong. They didn't know it was in the Bible. Another thing they did was relics. They said if you come up and pray at a bone, or if you pray at a toenail of someone from the Bible, then that'll take off some time in purgatory. And if you went to a, like a, just kind of a low-level relic, I mean, that might take off a year or two. If you went to like a, a big high-dollar relic, <laughs> I mean, you could take off like 50 years, 100 years, man. So the church was making money hand over fist. By the way, Mr. Keith and Miss Kristen went to Romania couple years ago now, they went to a place where you go and, and you, it was some sort of saint or some sort of venerated uh, apostle or something. You, you could go and you could pray before this thing. And you could buy, didn't you tell me you could buy flowers and lay it there? If you go and buy yourself a, some flowers and lay it there, well, I mean, that's just even more time taken up. The church is still teaching this. When we went to New Orleans, we went to a, a Catholic <laughs> cathedral. And, uh, and, and Trent was there with me. All right, now here's the thing. There were some candles up there that were being lit, that were lit, all right? Now, understand, people paid money to light those candles. Now, the reason why they paid money to light those candles is because they believed they had a loved one, like maybe 
maybe Mr. Keith would be in purgatory. And so I went up there and I would pay money so I could light a candle. And as long as that candle was burning, then it would be taking some time off of his sentence in purgatory. So when I went there with Trent, and we go up there to those candles, and, and he goes, why are some of them lit and some of them aren't? I said, get back, Trent. <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing this. Because I could just see him. I could just see him go, that one's almost out. Can I go ahead and blow that one out? No, no, you cannot. In any case, they still teach this. And no one at the time knew it was wrong because the Bibles were outlawed. Do what? Why do people still do it today? Because the Catholic Church, even though, even though things have changed because of Martin Luther, and I'm about to tell you how he changed things, traditions have become just as important to people as the Bible itself. And they hold a very firm grasp on a lot of things. They still teach a lot of very wrong things. I haven't even gotten into the popes. I haven't even gotten into the fact that they added books of the Bible to the Bible. All those things were going on. And Martin Luther goes and joins a monastery. He becomes a monk. And Luther was scared of God... He was very scared of God. And he used to think that the way he could deal with his sins, even before he got to purgatory, he used to think maybe he could beat them out of himself. Maybe he could hurt himself. Maybe it would knock out some of those sins. So there's stories about how he used to beat himself with rods. There are stories about how he used to pray for hours on his knees. There's even one story about how in the middle of a cold German winter, winters in Germany are cold, he decided he was so sinful he didn't even deserve his blankets or his bed or his room. So he said, I'm going to sleep outside without any of my comforts. And He went outside to sleep and he would have died that night if the other monks had not gone out there and dragged his body back in the monastery. Luther was a very devoted monk, but he was scared of God. Very scared of God. But he was brilliant, unbelievably intelligent. And so they said, you're so smart, Luther, you need to be teaching the Bible to the people. So they gave him a Bible. They said, study it, learn it, and then teach it. And Luther starts studying the Bible for the first time. Starts reading it. He comes to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And in his own autobiography, he said that when he got to these verses, he didn't have to read any more. And he realized that everything he had been taught was wrong. If you were here on Sunday, Pastor Tim preached through these verses. But let me read them to you. 
Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And all of a sudden he started thinking, it's not about buying indulgences or relics. It's not about praying for hours. It's not about beating myself or sleeping out in the winter cold. It's not about any of those things. It's about faith. It's about throwing myself upon the grace of God through my faith. And so on October 31st in the year 1517, Martin Luther makes a list of 95 things. It's called the 95 Thesis. And he goes and he nails that 95 Thesis up on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And because of that day, people started seeing. They started seeing that all those things the church was teaching were wrong. And man, as much as Luther dedicated himself to being a monk and trying to beat sins out of him and trying to, to pray sins away from him and all those kinds of things and indulgences and relics, as much as he was into that before, all of a sudden this faith in Christ took him to places that even today people are still talking about what he did. In fact, another great historical figure is even named after Martin Luther King Jr., which I can't remember if, if, who was who said it first. But here's the thing, guys. Luther looked at the Scripture and his life was changed because of his faith. He had faith that Christ would guide his steps. Now, why am I telling you these things? Because in Nehemiah 2, we're going to see a faith that's at work, that's life-altering, that is groundbreaking and earth-shaking for all those who are around it. But I've used the word faith a lot, and I've got to ask you this question, what is faith? What is faith? But specifically, what is faith as it applies to our faith in God? What is it? What is faith? Yeah, Casey. You said trust, but what? Okay, so trusting is something maybe you can't see or maybe something you can't grasp or hold on to. What else? Anybody have anything to add to it? Well, let me give you this definition. What is faith? It is a trusting in God that compels us to act on what we believe. 
Faith is a trusting in God that compels us to act on what we believe. So Casey used the word trust earlier, and that's a great word there. Faith is tied, it is linked up to what we trust in, what we believe in. Now all of you, when you came in here, chose a seat that you were going to take. You stood in front of the seat. You looked at the seat knowing that it was behind you, knowing that if you sat down in it, your full body weight was going to be in that chair. And all of you sat down in it. Did you trust the chair? Yeah. You knew it would hold you? Casey, is it holding you? It is. Remarkable. Miraculous even. Unbelievable. Fantastic. Yes. You trusted in the chair, you sat in it, and your trust was not misled, correct? Now let me ask this. Let's say you were still standing there, Casey. Let's say you never sat down. Let's say I looked at you and I said, Casey, I mean, you can sit down in the chair. You can relax. The chair will hold you. You can sit down in it. And you turn around and you looked at it and said, I know. But then you didn't sit down. I said, well, you can sit down. You can trust that it'll sit down. I, I know. It, I know. I know. I can have trust in it. Are you going to sit down? No, I'm not going to do that. Well, what, you don't trust it'll hold you up? No, 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 I trust it'll hold me up. Well, why don't you sit down? You see how it gets crazy? If your trust in that chair is not acted upon, then we cannot say that you've had trust in that chair or faith in that chair. Does that make sense? In the same way, when we're talking about faith, you have to understand that it is a trusting in God that compels us to act on what we believe. If your faith in God doesn't get you to do something about it, well, then we cannot rightly say that you have put your faith in God. So, does your faith depend on what you do? Let me ask you that. Does your faith depend on what you do? I saw some heads nod yes, some heads nod no. Your faith, in fact, does not depend on what you do. You can have faith in something, and you can never have the opportunity to show your faith in something, but you can still believe in it wholeheartedly. But how does the rest of the world, how do they know if you have faith in it? You've got to act on it. This is spelled out for us in the Bible. We've got some Bible verses I want you to look up. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Who's got that one? Uh, Casey, I saw your hand first. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Logan, your hand. And then Andre, I saw your hand. You do James 2, 14 through 17. All right? So Logan, you've got the Ephesians. Uh, Casey, you've got the Romans. Andre, you've got the James. All right, so all three of those are in the New Testament. So Casey, whenever you're there at Romans 5, 1 through 2, and this is the Apostle Paul writing, I want you to read those two verses for us. 
because of our faith, we have been brought into a relationship with God. Casey, it doesn't say because of the things you do, but it says because of the faith. Correct? Because of faith. Understand, if, when we get there in just a second, if Nehemiah doesn't have faith in God, then none of the things that are going to happen will happen. If Luther didn't have faith in God, then none of the things that happened with him would have happened. It's because of faith. And faith alone, only faith, that we're saved, only faith that we are counted to be with God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Okay, by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Faith. And it's not your own doing, not a result of works. You can't work yourself into salvation. You cannot work yourself into God's favor. You cannot work yourself into the grace of God. It is by grace through faith and faith alone. But then James 2, 14 through 17 has an odd thing to say, or it seems odd at first, so read it for us. Faith without works is dead. But wait a minute. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says it's through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it's by faith, not works. And then James comes along and says faith without works is dead. What does that mean? It means this. If you have genuine and honest and real faith in God, you're going to do something about it. If you have faith in Him, you're going to live it out. And this is clearly seen in Nehemiah chapter 2. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to read, along, read it. You guys follow along. It says this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Real quick, why was Nehemiah sad? What had been burned down? What was broken down in Jerusalem? The walls. He had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Why would he be afraid there? We're going to come back to it. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? 
So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let me stop right there. And what we need to see here in these first eight verses is Nehemiah's prepared response. Nehemiah's prepared response. Last week, we saw that Nehemiah received word from people that he loved, that he trusted, that he knew, that the gates of the city were broken down. Now, Zerubbabel had gone. He had built up the temple. That was a good thing. Ezra had gone before him, and he had been reading the scriptures to the people. That was a good thing. But understand that if the uh, walls were left in ruins, it wouldn't matter if the temple was rebuilt and if the law was there because any enemy at any time could come in there and they could conquer it again. And they could tear it all down again. So Nehemiah is saddened by it. And he's the cupbearer to the king. Now, it says he was afraid when he went to the king and he showed sadness on his face. Why would that scare Nehemiah? Nehemiah is at the banquet of the king. Do you think banquets for the king were times of celebration or were they times of somber nothingness? They were times of celebration. And if you're going to go before the king, which he would be there before the king, he would be the guy pouring the wine for the king. He would be the guy up there. Sometimes if the king was afraid of poison, he would take the cup and he would drink it first to prove there was no poison in the drink. This was a guy that the king trusted and the king's having a time of celebration. It's a wow kind of a moment. And all of a sudden he looks up there and he sees a sad face. Man, you're bringing down my celebration, Nehemiah. And if you upset the king, you know what the king can do to you? He can kill you. So Nehemiah has a lot of reason to be afraid. But understand, he has thrown himself, and we saw this last week, he threw himself upon the grace of God. He said, God, if this wall is going to be rebuilt, it's only by your grace and your grace alone. And so as he looked to God and as he saw that it's only going to be the grace of God, he put his faith in God. And he said, I know you'll do it, God. He put his faith in God. And so even in that moment, even though he had not gone yet to, uh, to Judah to go rebuild the wall, his mind was already at work. And he started thinking, if I'm going to go there, if this is going to happen, we're going to have to have this much time. We're going to have to have this much uh, uh, materials and this much timber. We're going to have to have these many workers. He's already got it all planned out. He's got it mapped out in his head. He knows what is needed. 
And so even though his hands and feet hadn't been put to action, his brain, his mind is already in action. And here's the thing, guys. There are some of you who will leave here and you won't think one more second about the God of the Bible. And you won't do anything about the God of the Bible. And you'll still sit there and say, but I've got faith. Understand, if the God of the Bible is not compelling you to think about serving him if the god of the bible is not compelling you to use your hands and feet for service to him then you need to start checking your pulse and seeing if you are alive in christ nehemiah even though he had not gone to the field yet his brain was already moving he was thinking, if we're going to do this, it's got to look like this. If I'm going to serve the king of kings, the God of my people, then it's going to look like this. This is how I want to do it. This is how I think we can get it done. He's been thinking about it. So he prepared his response before the king. The next section that we're going to read is verses 9 through 16, and it's Nehemiah's dread realized. Let me read it to you real quick. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Heronite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, her, uh, uh, Tobiah, the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night... I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. He gets there and he sees, yeah, the world, Jerusalem, Judah, excuse me, Judah, is just as bad. As they said. And it's going to take the grace of God to do something with his people. And so his dread as he walked around that night and as he saw these things. It said a funny it said that the dung gate was destroyed. Do you guys know what the dung gate was? I, I have to go through this because y'all heard it so much. The dung gate was just a gate that was there, and people would have their trash their garbage, their waste, it would all go through that gate and it would all be taken to a dump. But that's all torn down. So even all, so if that's all torn down, where's the waste going? It's just staying there. Everything about this place is nasty and gross. The dread is realized. It's even worse than I thought it was. And then finally... Nehemiah's cry to rally. Verses 17 to 20, very quickly, and those are all in your study guide. Then I said to them, 
You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right to claim in Jerusalem. So this is what happens, okay? He looks at the people and says, let's build this wall. God has put this on us. We've got a job to do. We've got a task ahead of us. This is what we're supposed to do. And he said that he will build it with us. He will go before us. He will strengthen us. He will give us grace. Let's build it. And if you remember, as I had said in Philippians 3, 17 through 21, if you were with me uh, a couple of nights ago on the Bible study, all right, remember Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Remember that? And what he's saying there, what Paul is saying is, if you imitate me, if you do what I do, then you're imitating Christ because that's who I'm going after. That's who I'm trying to imitate. That's who I'm trying to replicate. And Nehemiah is sitting there and he's saying, I'm following after what God has given me. Come with me. And there are people who stand in their way and they say, no, this is, this is awful. And they're being despised for it. And Nehemiah and the people say, we don't care. We're going to do exactly what God has called us to do. And all of a sudden, their faith is no longer just a mind thing. It started with the mind. It was good to start it in the mind. But when God called them to the task, they were ready. And all of a sudden, their faith had action. Their faith had movement, and they start to do what God had called them to do. So here's the thing, guys. Every single one of you is called to do something for the kingdom of God. Every single one of you. There are things you can do that I cannot. Logan was telling me about an opportunity he's got this Saturday to play at the school and to work with a guy who's Wanting to, to say something and do something for the kingdom. But as Logan looks at him, he's not sure if the guy has a healthy understanding of the Bible. I don't know this guy. I can't jump into Logan's shoes. I can't go and do the work, the task is set before him. But Logan can. And guess who put it in Logan's way? God. In the same way I could go through here and I could talk about all of your circumstances. I could talk about all the things that are going on or some of the things that are going on in your life where I can't do what you're called to do. I'm not there. I'm not you. But God's called you to do something, so do it. And if you don't, or even more tragically, if you won't, You better start checking your pulse to see if you have a faith that is in Him and Him alone. Let me pray for us. The band's going to 
sing some more songs and we're going to sing to this God who we put our faith and our trust in. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you. We do praise you. We do thank you that there is a faith that we can have in you. We do thank you that there is a trust that compels us to act. And Lord, I pray that you would be there for these students and that God, I think all of them in here would claim to have trusted in you. But God, I pray now that you would compel them to do something with the faith they claim to have. Act upon it. Live upon it. It's in your Son's name, Jesus, I ask these things and for His sake. Amen.